0: So what I want you to do right now is stand up and cheer wildly for Luke Hazelmeyer as Luke comes up to give the message. Happy New Year, everybody. (laughs) Hey, guys. Good to be with you this morning again. My name is Luke, and I am wrapping up a series that I started two weeks ago called The Presence of God. So we're going to be talking about the presence of God more this morning, and we're specifically going to be looking at what a biblical paradigm for the presence of God is. So to kick things off, I actually want to start by telling one of my favorite stories when I think about a friend of mine whose life was changed by encountering the presence of God. So January of 2015, I was working here and I was leading what we call a house group in um, the north side part of Cincinnati. And so I'm leading that house group. And if you've never been to a house group, house groups usually have about 30 to maybe 40 people that will show up. That was kind of how big this one was at that time. And, And so this guy shows up for the very first time in January. He happens to be in the Bible study that I was leading. So, um, I met him, kind of talked him through some stuff, hearing his opinions on the Bible, and, and then I kind of lost track of him after that, because if you've ever been to a house group, you know that we start in one big group, and then we get into a bunch of small groups for Bible studies, and then we get into like medium-sized groups for what we call ministry time, and then maybe even back into a big group, and so... Um, About an hour and a half later, I end up being on the top floor of this house in Northside, praying for another one of my good friends now, who was actually dealing with some demonic attack. So nothing like crazy, but basically like he was hearing the enemy speak lies to him, like in his mind super clearly. And so I'm up in the top room and I'm praying for this guy, when all of a sudden I hear the dude that was in my Bible study from earlier coming up the stairs, like, where's Luke? I need to talk to Luke, where's he at? And so, um, pause. Well, let me pause right there. To give you a little bit of context of this guy who was coming up the stairs, I would later learn that he had a pretty crazy story, a pretty pretty traumatic childhood. Um, just a bunch of stuff from, um, from witnessing some abuse, um, and also uh, not growing up with a father, and um, his mother. Getting into a horrible accident and getting involved in some crime in his teenage years. Like he had, um, from being homeless for a little while and going from kind of friend's house to friend's house to live at, sometimes nowhere at all, just had a really, really rough childhood. And so this is the guy that's coming up the stairs as I'm praying for the other dude who is experiencing demonic attack. So I'm praying for him. And I'm kind of just like, all right, Holy Spirit, just keep doing stuff for the next five minutes while I go and see what this other, what this other guy wants. So I walk out of the room, and um, here's this guy, and he's with another one of our leaders at the North Side House Group. And he's like, Luke, like, I was down there in one of those medium-sized groups, and this girl said that she heard, uh, said that God gave her a vision for me, and the vision she shared with me was like a, image for image description of my room where I'm currently living, and then she said a bunch of stuff, and I have no clue how she knew any of it, and then she prayed for me, and my arm started shaking, and I don't know what's going on, (laughs) and I'm just kind of standing there like, yes, awesome, this is sweet, so basically we talked to him for a little bit, and he ended up saying, I just know I need to rededicate my life to Jesus. I've been a Christian before, but I haven't been following him. I want to rededicate my life to the Lord. So right there, we prayed for him. He rededicated his life to Jesus and um, went on to become a good friend. And actually now, Keenan is leading the Glendale House group three and a half years later. So <clears throat> pretty awesome. And I part of the story I didn't tell you is that uh, Keenan later told me like, dude, I've been involved in a bunch of different youth groups growing up. I've been in this church and this church and this church, but it was the experience with the presence and the power of God that actually transformed his heart. And that's what we're talking about. That's what I've been talking about the last two weeks. That's what I'm talking about this week is that, um, we want the life changing impacting experience of the presence of God, because I believe that, um, Arguments can you know, sometimes help people. Knowledge can sometimes help people. But when you actually experience the goodness and the love of God for yourself, nobody can take that away from you. And it changes you. And so we're going to keep talking about experiencing the presence of God. And what I really want to focus on is a biblical event called Pentecost. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Pentecost is talked about in Acts 2. Acts 2. And it was basically when the Holy Spirit manifested his presence for the first time on the 120 disciples that Jesus left behind after he ascended to heaven, after he had uh, resurrected from the dead. So from now on, when I say Pentecost, I'm talking Acts 2, and I'm talking about when the Holy Spirit first came on the 120 disciples who were praying and waiting for him to come. So, if we uh, talk, though, if we back up a little bit from that, we talk about Acts 1. When you read Acts 1, we read the last things that Jesus said to the disciples he was leaving behind. So, this is after Jesus had already resurrected from the dead, and he's with his disciples, and he says to them, All right, guys, I know you're probably really ready to go out and do what we've been doing heal the sick, cast out demons, proclaim the gospel, cleanse the lepers. I know you're probably really ready to do that stuff, because you literally have seen me go from being dead on a cross to alive in your midst. Like, talk about an an, uh, um, infilling of faith. But I don't want you to do any of that yet. What I want you guys to do is just wait, because you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So wait. So the disciples, after asking a few questions... And seeing Jesus ascend into the sky and go back to heaven, they just find a room and they pray and they wait. And they didn't have a grid for what it would look like for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. They had heard a couple of teachings about the Holy Spirit. I can imagine them after Jesus ascends being like, okay, what do you say about the Holy Spirit again? He's the comforter, um, he's the teacher, he'll lead us into um, what again? And so, like, um, they didn't have a, they knew a little bit about the Holy Spirit, but. I can imagine them sitting there and trying to remember everything that Jesus said as they're praying and saying, God, um, we, we want the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit because Jesus said we do. So we need it. And so uh, 40 days go by and then the Holy Spirit comes and it is he comes um, in dramatic fashion. And so let's actually read about this event that Jesus had been talking about, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Verses 1 through 4. This is what it says When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appear, appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. I want to take a second and talk about what the filling of the Spirit is and what it isn't, based on what we read here and other parts of the Word. So, starting, the filling of the Spirit is discernible, it's something that you can discern, it's something that you can notice. In this story, one moment, the Holy Spirit was not there. The next moment, the Holy Spirit was there. And the important part is the 120 disciples in the room were able to discern when that shift happened. In the same way, when the Holy Spirit comes in a room, we're not just talking about the omnipresence of God that's everywhere that you can't get away from that a lot of times you forget about. We're talking about the discernible presence of God. Like sometimes you might, it might feel in the room like the air just gets heavy. Or you might feel something else and you discern it. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about the presence of God. Secondly, the filling of the Spirit is sensory. You can experience, you can perceive the Holy Spirit with your five senses. So, I mean, we read this like they heard the sound of a violent rushing wind. That's one of their five senses. They saw with their eyes the tongues of fire. Um, Later on in Acts 4, the second time they get filled with the Spirit, they feel emboldened to preach the gospel. Uh, Luke 24, we read that they felt their hearts burning within them when they had been around Jesus, but Jesus had been hiding his identity, so they didn't know it was him. They didn't know they were with Jesus, but these two disciples um, felt their hearts burning within them. In 1 Kings 8, um, when... The Israelite nation, led by their King Solomon, had first erected their temple, the temple of God, um, the, holies, the glory of God came and filled the temple so powerfully that they couldn't even stand. They felt the weight of his presence. So... Uh, The filling of the Spirit is something that we're supposed to be able to discern with our five senses. It's not something that is purely spiritual. It's not something that's emotional. It is um, sensory. Also, the filling of the Spirit can be subtle or can be dramatic. I don't know what picture you have in your mind when you think of the filling of the Spirit, but it doesn't have to be something really dramatic. It doesn't have to be like some of the stories that i told uh, the last couple of weeks where, you know, I fell to the ground and couldn't stand up. One of my uh, favorite descriptions and stories of someone first experiencing the Holy Spirit is Vans, our senior pastors. Um, he talks about how he was praying and it just felt like a warm blanket came over him. That's something that's not dramatic. Um, it's subtle, but it's still the experience of the presence of God. And so don't think that if you aren't experiencing something dramatic, you're not experiencing God's presence. It can be something subtle as well. Also, the filling of the Spirit can be voluntary or involuntary. So involuntary meaning totally out of your control, nothing you can do about it. I love some of the stories that I read of old revivals. If you haven't read about old revivals um, throughout the centuries, read them. A lot of times, a common story is a skeptic of the revival who's like, this is not real, will come into the meeting and be there, and then the power of God and presence of God will call on that person so powerfully that they'll be on the ground. They physically won't be able to get up, and they don't even want the thing to be happening and it's happening to them because they don't believe in it, but also they can't deny what's happening to them because they can't move. <clears throat> so like sometimes when we experience God's presence, it is involuntary. And I can point to experiences I've had with God where I could not do anything about it. I could have tried my hardest to resist it, but it was just, there was nothing I could do. But then there's also voluntary. If you, the experience, the filling of the Spirit can be voluntary. And I'm not, when I say that, I don't mean manufactured. I don't mean you like hype yourself up to experience something. But what I do mean is that the presence of God starts to do something and you say yes to it, and then more happens. To kind of give you a picture of this, um, I married a very emotional person. My wife, Jamie. I'm not that emotional. I'm getting more emotional because I need to get more emotional because human beings are supposed to be emotional, she tells me. But (laughs) I... (laughs) Just kidding. I believe that. Um... but she's way more emotional than me so we'll be watching a sad movie she's crying you know tv show commercial with a puppy on it whatever fill in the blank and i'll be sitting there and um i'd be lying if i said in those moments that i never felt like i could cry but you see, um, you know, I've learned that men don't cry. We've got to push our emotions down. If you start to feel the tears coming up, push those things right back down. Grit your teeth. And so, like, I mean, what's an example? Okay, so this is going to be—anyone watch The Office in here? This might be slightly embarrassing. So there's a scene where two main characters, Jim and Pam, are about to get married, Pam's veil gets torn and she's distraught. She goes to um, find her um, her future husband, Jim, the groom, and she's like complaining and she's just like distraught about her veil being torn. And so just kind of in an impulsive moment, he grabs a pair of scissors and cuts his tie in half just to show her that that stuff doesn't matter. And in that moment, I got a little emotionally moved. Like, (laughs) if I'm being honest, I felt emotionally moved when I that experience and I didn't cry but I could have cried if I would have not resisted the sensation that I was experiencing in the same way that is how sometimes experiencing God works the Lord releases something to us and we can either say yes or no to it if we say no to it then you know he'll stop or if we say yes to it and we kind of step into it more will happen so, some, and a lot of times that's how experiencing God's presence is for us. That He doesn't just force Himself upon us over and over and over again. He's a relational God. He kind of takes a step towards us, and we take a step towards Him. And so, experiencing God can be voluntary or involuntary. Last, the, uh, exp- the feeling of the Spirit can be experienced at varying intensities. So, this kind of plays into subtle or dramatic, but. Sometimes we can experience God and it is like crazy intense. Other times it's not quite as intense. Both are legitimate. Both are valid. One is not better than the other. So that's what the filling of the spirit is. I want to talk a little bit about what the filling of the spirit isn't. So first, what we read in Acts 2, what we just read, is not human excitement. And the filling of the spirit is not human excitement. Uh, football analogy comes to mind, so I'm just going to use it. I know it might not hit everybody. But men, um, ever, or anyone who likes football, have you ever been around, at a fo- uh, watching a football game with a bunch of other people around a TV and nothing interesting is happening, so you're all just kind of sitting there, you know, eating your nachos, drinking your beer, whatever you do when you watch a football game, and then all of a sudden, like, the wide receiver beats the cornerback, and everyone's kind of like on alert, and the excitement is rising, the ball's in the air, everyone's holding their breath, you know, wide receiver catches the ball, scores a touchdown, everyone is jumping up and down, screaming, high-fiving each other, spinning around in a circle. Like, that is what I'm talking about when I say human excitement. And so a lot of times, like, you can be around other people, and the human excitement in the room can start to rise, and everyone else can start getting more excitement. And here's the thing, that can happen in church sometimes. And just because that happens doesn't necessarily mean it is the presence of God. And so the presence of God isn't just, and that's why I'm saying this, it's not just when everyone all gets excited at the same time. Also, uh, the filling of the Spirit isn't the same as being emotionally moved, Being filled with God's presence and experiencing God's presence is not the same as being emotionally moved. When I was watching The Office, I don't think I was experiencing God's presence. Who knows? Maybe I was. But I don't think I was experiencing God's presence when I was moved by the tie cutting in that scene. Um, Because just being emotionally moved is not what we're talking about when we're talking about experiencing God. And while we're on this topic, I want to go after a mindset that I think, um, again, I'm going to pick on the men. It's not only men that have this, but a lot of times it is men that have this. I want to go after a mindset that I think um, the enemy has sown into a lot of Christian thinking, which is this. Experiencing God is for emotionally wired people. Understanding God is for rationally wired people. I've ta- I was talking to a guy recently who was like, man, I'm just looking for a church where they actually love each other and care about each other and won't stab each other in the back. I'm like, well, dude, I've got a vested interest here, but why don't you come check out Vineyard Northwest? He's like, oh, no, no, I'm not emotionally wired enough for that church. I'm more rationally wired, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so there's this, there's this idea that, like, if, you are into exper- if, you're, into, if you're into experiencing God, then you must be an emotionally wired person, whereas if you really want to understand theology and doctrine, then you must be a rationally wired person. So i got a lot to say about that. Probably not going to say it all. Um, First, if that's true, you're telling me that all 120 disciples that Jesus chose to be the core of the first church we're all emotionally wired people. That every single one of them that Jesus said, you know, I'm only I know half people are emotionally wired and can experience God, half people are rational wired and can't. So I'm going to pick only emotional people, emotional people to form the church. That doesn't make any sense, right? Secondly, um, again I'm talking to the men. So I'm talking to right now to actually to men who are married or hope to be married. So if that's you, and you would be tempted to say, or you know, some would be tempted to say that knowledge and understanding are for rationally wired people, experiences are primarily for emotionally wired people. How many of you would also say that, you know, knowing the details of your spouse's life and really understanding her story and knowing everything that's going on right now in, with her life is for rationally wired people, but uh, let's say husband and wife intimacy is primarily for emotionally wired people. I don't think you guys caught that. So, <laughs> like, experiences, that's for emotional people. I don't need experiences. You know, one time every two years, every five years, that's fine for me. But, okay, let me just leave that one behind. <laughs> I'll leave that one behind. First service, I like that one a little bit more, just saying. But seriously, like the point I'm getting at is that like um, experiences and knowledge are not just for a certain wired person. They're for everybody. And besides that, a big point I want to make is that the experience of the presence of God is not a primarily emotional event. It's not an emotional event. Um, there's a distinct separation between the manifestation of God's presence and the resulting, that's the important word there, resulting expression of emotion. So, let me give you an example. Uh, I'm going to pick on Jamie a little bit. Are you okay with that? Okay. So, Jamie is the, one of the most positive people. It takes a lot to get her in a bad mood, but she does succumb to anger, if you know what I mean. Okay. When she gets hungry, a little more irritable, a little more angry. Anyone else get hangry in this room? Okay. So, he, so this, is what, this is literally the series of events that will happen. Jamie gets hungry. She experiences the physical sensation, the sensory experience of hunger. And then because of that hunger, the emotion that is resulting is anger. In the same way, when we experience God's presence and an emotion is attached to it, it's not because the emotion is the experience of the presence of God. It's because we experience the presence of God and then an emotion results from it. Just like you experience hunger and then an emotion results from that hunger. But the hunger is not the emotion. The emotion comes from the hunger. And so in the same way, um, the manifestation of God's presence is not an emotion. And that's why, that's ultimately why um, it's not for emotionally wired people. Because it's not, an, it's not inherently emotional. Although a lot of times it does result in emotions. So we should expect to detect the presence of God through our physical senses, whether we are an emotional person or a not an emotional person. And I'm not saying that we only detect the presence of God through our senses. And I'm not saying that we always detect the presence of God through our senses. Sometimes we detect it just spiritually through a knowing. Sometimes we physically can see the presence of God. But we should expect to experience the presence of God through our senses often enough that we rely on it. It's not something that should just be every couple of years that's like a treat to our Christian, like a bonus that God gives us for being a Christian. It should be something that we actually rely on to live out our walk with the Lord. So let's continue on in Acts 2. Um, after, the, after Pentecost happens and they're, you know they're speaking other languages and there's rushing wind and fire and all that, Um, The next thing that happens, we're skipping this part, is a crowd forms. Because everyone's like, what the heck is going on? And some people go, oh, they're just drunk. But then um, Peter stands up and he explains to the crowd what's going on. So this is verses 14 through 18. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I mean, really quickly, there's another thing. The Spirit is poured out not just on emotional people, on everybody. You are not the exception to this unless you choose to push away God. Maybe, maybe, he'll, maybe you will have an experience where he will bypass your free will and just, boom, hit you with his presence. But maybe he won't. Maybe he'll choose to only um, allow you to experience that if you say yes to it. But we do read in Scripture, the Spirit is meant to be poured out on everybody. So um, I could say a lot more about that. Here's what what I want to point out from this. Um, Peter here is quoting an Old Testament book. Anybody know which one? Joel. So Peter is quoting Joel here. And basically what Peter is saying is, hey, guys, remember what the prophet Joel said those several hundred years ago? He said that the spirit would be poured out, men and women, slave and free. And this is actually what's happening right now. So here's the interesting thing about that. I want to, maybe we don't get it on the screen. I want to read to you what Joel said would happen when the spirit was poured out. And then I want to read to you what actually happened when the spirit was poured out. So Joel said that when the Spirit would be poured out, there would be prophecy, three things, prophecy, visions, and dreams. He says, um, men and women shall prophesy, and then old men shall dream dreams, young men shall see visions. Those are the three things that Joel said would happen when the Spirit was poured out. So let's fast forward several hundred years later to Acts 2 at Pentecost. What do we see happen? Wouldn't you expect that because Joel said it would happen, and because Peter said, hey, this is what Joel was talking about, wouldn't you expect that there would be prophecy, visions, and dreams at Pentecost? When we read it, there are no prophe- there's no prophecy, there are no visions, and there's no dreams. You know what there are? There uh, there's a sound of rushing wind, tongues of fire, and speaking in different languages. Joel said there'd be dreams, visions, and prophecy what actually happened was tongues fire and rushing wind so what do we make of that do we just think that well i guess peter just got it wrong or joel got it wrong (laughs) probably not because the word of god doesn't have errors so how do we explain that um here's what i think I think that Peter stood up and said, hey, this is what Joel was talking about, because he understood, probably from the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit being poured out, that what um, Joel was talking about was descriptive of the Holy Spirit being poured out, not prescriptive. Meaning this, that Joel talked about the kinds of things that we should expect to see when the Holy Spirit was being poured out, but not necessarily the only things. And so that's what I think we make of this. Joel said there'd be visions, dreams, and prophecy. What happened was wind, fire, and different languages where we should say is, wow, those six things and probably a whole lot more can happen when the Holy Spirit is poured out because those are descriptive of what it's like for the Holy Spirit to pour out, not prescriptive. That is not an exhaustive list. Those six things are not the only things we should expect when the Holy Spirit is poured out. Right. This is why when the Holy Spirit t- starts to touch a person, we're not all going, okay, where is it word for word in here? Because I, don't, because I think what God's intention was, and what we get from the word is that, yes, we should discern and we should ask the Lord, hey God, what are you doing in the room? If I'm experiencing something, I should, um, I, you know, I should ask, hey God, like, what are you doing in me right now? But we shouldn't feel the pressure that you have to shut anything down that you don't find word for word in here because what we read in Acts 2 and what we read in Joel 2 is descriptive, not prescriptive. If it were prescriptive, if it were this is all that can happen, then we should say this is all that can happen. But since the Bible doesn't say this is all that can happen, we shouldn't say this is all that can happen either. So, um, a good... A phrase I like to use with this is that what we ex- our Holy Spirit experiences, our prophetic experiences, should be founded in Scripture, not necessarily found in Scripture. The foundational principle should be there. If we are experiencing something like that is contrary to the Bible, like if we're experiencing something, it's like, okay, I'm experiencing this, and it is really making me want to go cheat on my spouse then we can probably say that is not founded in Scripture. (laughs) Um, But it doesn't necessarily need to be found word for word. Like, let me give you an example. Um, A Holy Spirit manifestation that you might see a lot is uncontrollable laughter. You might, some people call it holy laughter. It's when a person is laughing hysterically, and they're laughing because they're experiencing God's presence. So, you don't find anywhere in the Bible where somebody is sitting there and praying and it's like, then Peter just started laughing uncontrollably. Then Paul started laughing uncontrollably. Maybe it happened at some point. I wouldn't be surprised if it did, but you don't read that in there. But what you do read is that joy is the fruit of the spirit. What do people do when they're joyful? They laugh. And joy is the result, the fruit, the result of the Holy Spirit. We also read that the men, the uh, 120 disciples, they seem drunk. And really, really joyful people. You take a really, really joyful person and a drunk person, and sometimes you can't tell the difference. (laughs) And so, um, and other stuff besides that. But um, So that particular manifestation, that laughing um, hysterically, it's not necessarily found word for word in here, but the principles of it are founded in Scripture. And because of that, we say yes to it. And we say, God, do more. So I want to address a couple of misconceptions about Pentecost before we end our time, because someone could say, okay, Luke, all that that you just shared is great, but actually you're just totally wrong about how to interpret Pentecost in the first place so your whole message is invalid. And so I'm going to make sure that nobody can say that. No. Uh, <laughs> No, that's not what it's about. But, but I, had some, um, I had some questions when I first came into to this environment. I was not raised in an environment where Holy Spirit ministry was prominent, where experiencing God was valued. And so I had some questions coming in, and I bet you there might be some people in here that have some questions, or maybe you know some people that have some questions. And so I do want to take a second just to address a couple of misconceptions that people have, and hopefully gives you or some people you know some peace. So here's the first misconception. Some will say that Pentecost was primarily about Holy Spirit regeneration, not Holy Spirit manifestation. You guys got that? Yet? You guys got that? Good. No. All right. All right. No, I'm going to define this term. Don't worry. So. Let's first, I want to define that first term, Holy Spirit regeneration. This is what I mean by Holy Spirit regeneration. The moment where a person is born again, becoming a new creation in Christ, and receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we get that from Titus 3 verses 4 and 5, which says, uh, says this But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we had done in righteousness, But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit regeneration is what happened when you became a new creation. You were dead in your sin, and then you reached out to God, and God said, I'm going to make you new. And not only that, I'm going to come live inside of you. And that God coming to live inside of you is what is called the Holy Spirit, um, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, And when the Holy Spirit came and made his dwelling within you is when you became a new person, born again, in the kingdom of God, saved. And so people will say that Pentecost was about that, not about experiencing God. And yeah, God made, he spiced it up a little bit with some wind and some fire and some languages to really make his point about it, but it wasn't something that we should expect to happen over and over again. It was just something to... it kind of gave the Holy Spirit regeneration a dramatic entry. And so they'll say that what actually happened in Acts 2 was that the disciples became born again. The disciples became new creations, that they were saved, that they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at that moment. And here's why that's wrong. The disciples had already received the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. If you don't believe me, I'll show it to you. So before I show you the verse, two things are important to understand. One, Pentecost happened after Jesus ascended. So Jesus ascends to heaven. He left the earth in Acts chapter 1 verse 9. You can read about it later if you want. We're not going to put it up there. Um, Pentecost happened in Acts 2. So chronologically, Jesus had already ascended to heaven before Pentecost. Got that? Second thing, before Jesus ascended, he actually breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So since he did it before he ascended, that means he did it before Pentecost. Which means Pentecost couldn't have been about um, the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit. John, this is where John 20, verse 22 comes into play. This is Jesus with the disciples before he ascended. It says this, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So this is the moment where the disciples actually became born again. This is the moment where they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and were made new creations. And this was weeks before Pentecost. So what that tells us is that Pentecost couldn't have been the event where the disciples received the Holy Spirit. Instead, Pentecost was what we've read and what we've been saying. It was the first time the disciples experienced the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, which let me define that term real quick. Here's, I've been using it all, you know, the last three weeks. Here's what I mean. The manifestation of, Of the Holy Spirit is this. It occurs when the Holy Spirit reveals His presence to a person in a tangible, discernible way. This is what Pentecost was about. Why did God do it? Well, we've already been talking about it. Because the disciples needed to have the continual experience of the presence of God to do what God had called them to do and to follow Jesus. So, Pentecost was not primarily about Holy Spirit regeneration. It was primarily about Holy Spirit manifestation. Second misconception that you hear is that the baptism of the Spirit, it implies a one-time event for Christians, that it happens once it's, yes, it is after you get saved, but it happens to you once, and that's it. And I think the reason we have this misconception is that we think, when we hear baptism of the Holy Spirit, we think... Um, getting baptized in water. And that is a one-time thing. You're not supposed to get baptized like every month to be a Christian. You don't need to do that. Um, Or every day. Um, And so I think because of the name of it, baptism of the Spirit, we uh, had that misconception that it's only supposed to be a one-time thing. So to address that, I want to read the passage where Jesus promises the baptism of the Holy Spirit And then I want to read the passage again. We already read it. Read it again where it actually happens. So let's look at Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. Um, This is where Jesus promises the baptism of the Spirit. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You have heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, Jesus says they will be what with the Holy Spirit? Would you help me out? Baptized, right? So, let's go to the actual event and see what it says. Let's read again um, Acts 2, 1 through 4, the very first slide. Sorry, I didn't tell you about this. So, Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Key part. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So Jesus said they'd be baptized. This says they were, help me out, filled. So which was it? Were they baptized or were they filled? Yes. And that's the point I'm making is that Um, The word word baptized, although in terms of water baptism, it does speak to a one-time thing, Jesus was not using it to say this is going to be a one-time thing. He was using it as another synonym for filled. If you actually go to Acts 10, this is a really cool one. It says when Peter's first preaching to the Gentiles, it says that while he was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon the room. And that Greek word fell upon was primarily used for like robbers mugging people. So it's like they got mugged by the Holy Spirit as he was preaching. I mean, I'm just like, Lord, I want the room to get mugged one time when I'm preaching. That'd be awesome. So mugged. you've got baptized, you've got filled. Remember, baptizo, the Greek word actually means to be immersed. That's why Jesus was using it because he's like, hey, it's going to feel, the best way I can describe it, it's going to feel like you're immersed in God. And so the reason that the word, you know, we see baptized, we see fill, we see fell upon, we see immersed, we see all these words is that um, the experience, the presence of God is so dynamic. It is so hard to put into words that one word doesn't suffice. You need multiple words to really describe what it's like. And so um, it's not something that just happens once and never happens again. It's something that should happen over and over and over again for believers, and this is why Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, it's not going to be up there, Well, actually it can be up there. Yeah, put it up there. Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That tense there, be filled, means be filled over and over and over again. So the final point I'm just, I want to leave everybody with is that sons and daughters of God, we should expect and pursue God to continually pour out His Spirit on us in an experiential way. We should be passionate about experiencing God's presence. Don't wait to experience the feeling of passion to choose to be passionate. You can either do that or you can choose to be passionate until the feelings of passion come. And um, let's go all out after God and experiencing his presence and being all about his presence. And I'm sure that wild stuff is going to happen in our midst. And not just wild, like cool And like spectacular, but kingdom impacting stuff. So that's all I got for today. Invite Van back up, we'll go into worship.